Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Asha Orkabi. Asha is an associate research scholar at Princeton University. He holds a PhD from Harvard in international history and Middle Eastern studies, and he's the author of the absolutely fantastic Beyond the Arab Cold War, the international history of the Yemen Civil War, 1962 to 1968. He's written extensively on Yemen, both past and present, and I'm really excited to welcome Asher onto the podcast today. So Asher, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure to be on. I'm really looking forward to this, Asher. I read your book a while ago, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think it, it touches on so many interesting and, and largely overlooked parts of, of Middle Eastern history. So I'm really looking forward to, to delving deeper into some of these things. But as I normally do, can I start, please, just by asking, what, what pushed you in the direction of, of a career in academia? And what, what facilitated your interest in the Middle East, and I guess Yemen in particular? Uh, so my father was born, uh, raised in in Yemen. Uh, so even though I'm New York, born and raised, uh, I grew up in a very much a Yemeni-speaking household with Yemeni cuisine, Yemeni culture. Fantastic. Uh, so I feel just as home in Yemen as I do in New York City. Uh, so that uh, sparked my interest in uh, in Yemen. But what really drew me in uh, was was just looking at the modern state of Yemen, and then looking back and trying to see where it came from. Uh, when it first started, and that's where I started with the 1960s in Yemen, and uh, looking at that particular story of that civil war that founds this state and creates what we know and we take for granted of is modern Yemen. Sure. So what was it that pushed you into academia, though? Was there a particular uh, moment, a particular thing, or was it just this this general curiosity about, about your father's homeland? Uh, I think it's just a general interest in, in history. Uh, some people used to go play sports and... Uh, read fantastic novels i would sit down and read heavy history books <laughs> fantastic uh, it, it's it's something that even at a young age led me to this uh, it was a very natural path sure uh, as was uh, the yemen interest uh, coming from family so it's uh, it's it, it, it was um it was second nature I, I don't think i really gave it too much thought uh, it was the direction that i'd always wanted to go okay interesting who were the just out of interest, and this is a personal interest on on my part as a as a fellow historian or an in, uh, a keen scholar of history. Who were the the historians that were really interesting for you, and who were the ones that that were sort of really feeding your intellectual curiosity? Uh, so I I think it would really be two people who were really uh, three people rather who were the real advisors and and guides in my my own career. Uh, so one was uh, early on in Brooklyn College, there was Casey Johnson, who's a specialist in uh, Lyndon Johnson's domestic and foreign policy. Uh, and it's the way that he described the excitement of, of history that really first drew me to the field as, as an early freshman, uh, and then set me off on that track, uh, very much focusing on international history in addition to my Middle East focus. Uh, then there was my other advisor, Eris Manila, uh, when I started over at Harvard, uh, and he's the author of Wilsonian Moment. Uh, so his way of looking at international history, that when you're looking at it, an individual episode within history, that it's not enough to look at just the local perspective or just a regional perspective, but trying to find everyone involved in order to tell a story that stretches across the globe. And, and that's really what, what I did with my own uh, research. And then uh, finally, it's uh, Professor Roger Owen, rest in peace, uh, passed away less than a year ago. 
who really drew me into uh, South Arabia as, as a region. I was drawn there uh, for uh, obvious uh, family reasons, but uh, Roger Owen really instilled a love of Middle Eastern studies into me, and I, I miss him dearly. He was a real great uh, commander, he was a real a great leader, um, and, and he was uh, a, a friend in addition to an advisor. And, uh, so his, his writing and his, um, his advising was really something that set me in the right path towards Middle Eastern studies. Yeah, I can imagine he's sorely missed, such a, a giant of the field. Um, but yeah, I, I guess you're very, very lucky to have, to have worked with him. I, I never met him, but but I heard so many wonderful things and obviously delved so deep into into his work. So I'm not at all surprised that that he had that type of influence on you. Um, Asha, let's, let's talk about the book then, if I may. So the book is Beyond the Arab Cold War, the International History of the Yemen Civil War. So we know that there's a, a bit of a personal dimension to it, that there's a historical interest that you have. But can you tell us a little bit just about the, the overview of the book, if you will, please, before we delve into the, the nitty gritty? For, for anyone who's not read it, what are you trying to do in the book and, and what are the broad claims, would you say? So, uh, as is the case with current events, and it's true with history as well, it's so much easier to divide the world, to divide history into bipolar spheres. Whether it's the Cold War, it's all about the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and uh, the same is true in the Middle East. It was all about Egypt and Saudi Arabia, or the presidential states, the republics and the monarchies. Uh, and that was famously known as, as the Arab Cold War by the late Malcolm Kerr. And it was taken for granted that this was the way that the region was divided, and it was, it was very much black and white, and the, the gray areas were few and far between, at least in terms of uh, diplomatic history of the Middle East. Uh, and, and this was one episode where I, I said, well, Yemen, the, the civil war was far more transformative for Yemen and, and for the region than just this uh, proxy battle between Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it was on this point that uh, I, I argued in the book that the Yemen civil war was not just this proxy battle, uh, but was on, on the one hand a struggle for Yemeni identity during the 1960s, and then the other was an international arena for both Cold War tensions, regional tensions, uh, and then international organizations that were uh, experiencing a uh, during the 1960s a very important transitive moment. Uh, and this all occurred within this uh, global Cold War arena within South Arabia and Yemen during the 1960s. So you're really dealing with this this multi-led and multi-causal set of levels of analysis that are that are hugely intertwined and interlinked and, and deeply complex sets of interactions that that span all these different levels, creating a really sort of interesting and rich amount of material for you to for you to address. And I, I love what you do with it. It's really fascinating. But before we again go into it in detail, I wonder if you can just give a bit more context about the uh, what what care caused the Arab Cold War for for people who aren't familiar. I wonder if you can just shed a bit of light on it and contextualize it a bit, please. Sure. So uh, we're looking at it really the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, which is the height of the Arab nationalist movement and uh, leaders like Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, and then later Gaddafi, who found these republics, nominally republics that uh, are built around a, a very central figure, a central persona. Uh, and this is a uh, 
in contrast, very much in contrast to the monarchies, whether it's Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, who are uh, much more conservative religiously, conservative politically, and are leaning towards the uh, U.S. camp, as opposed to the Arab nationalist movement, which already by the mid to late 1950s is moving towards the the Soviet camp. You know, this is seen within a larger context, not just of the Arab nationalist movement, uh, but also the 1950s Bandung conference, uh, and looking at the non-aligned movement. So uh, it's it's taking the Middle East and uh, placing an artificial line in between those states like Egypt uh, and Libya and Iraq uh, uh, versus those states that are led by my monarchies like Saudi Arabia and Morocco. So it creates this division between the two of them. And then that division builds up between the relationship between the United States and these countries and then between the Soviet Union and Egypt, Syria uh, and, uh, and Libya so, uh, and Iraq. So creating that uh, division within the Middle East that very much mirrors the global division of, uh, of the Cold War uh, between those two sides. And uh, a, an example of Yemen is one of the numerous examples where Malcolm Kerr sees that global and regional division as acting as a proxy uh, oversight to a, a local conflict where both Egypt and Saudi Arabia uh, intervene uh, in various different ways within this uh, conflict and uh, create that uh, sense of an Arab Cold War within Saudi Arabia, and I think one of the th- one of the things that I, I really appreciate about the book is the the focus that you've got on on local agency here. That it's it's not just about these these grand regional strategies, the sort of the regional competition or the the broader international Cold War, but but you're talking about Yemenis and their position within all of this, this struggle for Yemeni nationalism and. And other aspects. So, where does Yemen fit into this? Then, I mean, what what was the Yemeni state like at this time? Um, what was Yemeni politics like at this time? Most uh, historians and, and Middle East experts would look at the 1952 uh, Free Officers Movement in Egypt as the penultimate, or the, at least the beginning of the. Uh, Arab nationalist movement. Gamal Abdel Nasser comes to power shortly after uh, and creates this idea of the military taking a very uh, in-depth and uh, and very hegemonic role within uh, the individual countries uh, in the Middle East. But uh, what few historians recognize is the fact that the first uh, free officers movement, not known by that term, actually occurred in 1948. Uh, The first coup against uh, one of the first coups against a, uh, a standing Arab monarch uh, occurred in Yemen in 1948 when Imam Yahya was overthrown by uh, a combination of tribal and, uh, and military interests. Uh, and this was a marking of, of both a very advanced free Yemen movement, as it was called, uh, that brought new ideas from the West uh, and from uh, the rest of the Middle East to Yemen and tried to transpose them upon a very repressive and insular monarchy. Uh, so what's really happening in Yemen, and doesn't receive that attention, is that the movement in 1962 is a culmination of over a decade and a half of machinations and uh, ideological movements within Yemen that then culminate in this September 1962 
uh, revolution that founds the modern state of Yemen. So yeah, it's often dismissed as just a uh, an extension of Egypt's Arab nationalist movement, an extension of the free officers movement. Some historians have even claimed that this entire Yemen revolution was something concocted uh, in the back rooms of Cairo and eventually transposed uh, without giving the agency to Yemenis themselves who uh, actually created this modern state and actually had the ability to uh, to found a state uh, of their own rather than have it uh, imported or transposed upon from others. As someone who spent a lot of time working on this, what what is it, do you think, that that makes people so dismissive of, of Yemeni agency? Part of that has to do with uh, several decades prior to 1948 of imposed isolation by the Yemeni imam. Now, this is specifically the northern half of Yemen, uh, because the southern half is an entirely different story. Uh, this is a British colony, the only official British colony in the Middle East in the southern port of, of Aden. So we're talking specifically just about a very small area in North Yemen. Uh, there is a little interaction with uh, the world outside of, of Yemen. Uh, Yemen was also not subject to the same colonial rule as many other countries within the region. Uh, it was also the first independent Arab state uh, even before the end of, of the First World War. Uh, so there's this, uh, because there's no interaction, I think part of this uh, dismissiveness is out of ignorance, frankly. There are few Yemenis who are traveling abroad uh, to study, uh, and there were also a few Yemeni merchants who have made their way outside of, of the South, uh, South Arabia region, which makes this uh, episode in the 1930s, Imam Yahya uh, loses a battle to Saudi Arabia in 1933 uh, and realizes that uh, he needs to modernize his military while at the same time maintaining that isolation. So he creates this uh, this idea, uh, later known as the famous 40, of 40, uh, some of them orphaned, others uh, outcast students, or talented students within Yemen, who Yahya sends abroad to study abroad and then bring their ideas back. Now his initial idea was to bring back just military and civil service, uh, but what also was brought back were new ideas about freedoms, new ideas about uh, national consensus, uh, things that did not necessarily uh, coexist or, or, uh, or exist uh, alongside a repressive imamate. Uh, so the the idea of, of Yemen being uh, in isolation uh, was part of, and parcel of what really pushed the public image of Yemen as uh, a, a hapless uh, backwater without the ability to actually found their own modern state. Right. So, going back to, to the revolution then and the events of the 1960s, why did it very quickly take on this, this regional importance then? Uh, it took on a, a regional importance because uh, Egypt, within days or weeks after the beginning of the revolution on September 26, 1962, sent a small battalion of soldiers to support this new state. Uh, there was uh, an assumption that the uh, imam, uh, the, uh, Muhammad al-Badr, who was the grandson of Yahya, uh, who had been in power for only seven days, there was an assumption that, uh, that he had been killed in a shelling of his palace on September 26th. Uh, he had previously been an Osirist and a friend of the Soviet Union. 
uh, often dubbed as the Red Prince. Uh, and without him in this picture, uh, it seemed uh, that the former imamate uh, and all the uh, tribes of the north that would formerly coalesce around an imam didn't have that same leadership, leader uh, or central uh, leadership focus. Uh, so uh, that meant that the republic itself would likely be a successful republic because there was going to be no uh, strong opposition. Uh, so taking this gamble, Gamal Abdel Nasser sent a battalion of soldiers that eventually grew into 70,000 Egyptian soldiers. Now this was after Imam Muhammad al-Badr is discovered alive and in Saudi Arabia and suddenly creates a counter-revolutionary guerrilla movement uh, that necessitates an increased number of Egyptian soldiers and air force, uh, which in response brings uh, Saudi financing uh, and pressure onto the other side. So this uh, creates, uh, Yemen in and of itself was not a proxy war, but what it did is draw in the interests of Saudi Arabia and the interests of Egypt uh, very similar to what happened in, in Vietnam, which is why Nasser calls Yemen his Vietnam, uh, to which Lyndon Johnson corrected him and said, no, uh, that Yemen was not your Vietnam, but Vietnam is my Yemen. Uh, so it was a, a play on words there, but the idea was that uh, this was really a local war, uh, but it turned into a quagmire and eventually drew in regional powers and then global interests. Sure, yeah. And then, of course, in drawing those those regional powers in, you see Saudi Arabia getting involved, and in part, this is where where Kerr's argument about the Arab Cold War is is really gaining traction. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, it, it depends where you're looking at the perspective. If you begin your story of the Yemen civil war prior to 1962, then it's a very much a Yemen story. If you look at your story in 1963 and 64, it's very much an Arab Cold War sure. Malcolm yeah. Kerr story. Uh, so depending on where you see that, you can see the starting point, and then you can see how uh, the, the regional powers got to that point. Was it a proxy war to begin with, mm -hmm. or... Uh, was was it um, what, what's coming first? Right, is the proxy war or the Yemen nationalist movement? Of course, yeah, and and that's a really interesting tension. I think that that comes out quite nicely in the book. One of the other things that that I really enjoyed was your your exploration of the the broader regional dynamics and the strange bedfellows that that emerged in in this conflict and this series of of proxy wars or however you, you wish to frame it. Can you just tell us a little bit about that then, please? So it's uh, important to also understand that neither Egypt nor Saudi Arabia wanted to be involved in Yemen to the extent that they were. Uh, it was clear uh, within months that this would be an intractable conflict, uh, as is the case with many guerrilla wars, especially against the mechanized army. Uh, there's no clear end uh, to to a conflict uh, like this. Uh, the wars, uh, the battles are vicious and often very costly. Uh, so it's important first to understand that uh, neither Saudi Arabia nor Egypt wanted to be there. Uh, now, it was also uh, was the case, um, so there were a number of different groups and organizations that had come in. Both the Soviet Union took a particular interest in Yemen, mostly for its uh, strategic location along the Red Sea. Uh, and uh, the United Nations 
uh, founds a, a peacekeeping mission. Uh, even the United States had to take a role. Uh, and this is all while the British Empire is still holding on to the last vestiges of its empire in the southern port of, uh, of Aden. So uh, Yemen coalesced in, in some way to, to draw in all these international interests uh, into this uh, singular single civil war. Yeah, and it, it brought together um, peculiar relationships, I guess, looking back on, on things with the, the benefit of, of history and the benefit of hindsight and, and perhaps looking at things now, going back and reflecting on this, this series of, of um, conflicts and tensions, we see the likes of Saudi Arabia and Iran working together, for example, and the Israelis occupying a, an interesting role in all of this. And the Israeli part came out uh, more out of happenstance, uh, aside from, from perhaps Saudi Arabia uh, or the royalists, the Yemeni royalists supporting the imam, uh, probably the only country organization that had more to gain out of a, an Egyptian defeat was Israel. Uh, and this uh, came about really because there was no other way to rearm the guerrillas, uh, the Yemeni guerrillas, uh, tribesmen uh, along the northern highlands, the same northern highlands that had prevented Egyptian uh, mechanized uh, army from uh, making any, any headway was also the impediment to resupplying any of these forces on hilltops or remote uh, hilltops uh, across North Yemen. So this is happenstance that uh, through a number of back channels, there was a small group of Israeli pilots and navigators that flew 14 missions uh, over to uh, to rearm the imam. And, and there's that really great episode where uh, really only the imam and, uh, and several other uh, the high-ranking sheikhs knew about this. Uh, there's this moment where the imam is, is losing control over his tribes uh, and he promises them that Allah will provide weapons and munitions to prepare them for the next battle against Egyptian soldiers. And at the agreed upon moment uh, in midnight, uh, there's a roar of an engine uh, up in the sky as the imam holds his hands up in supplication and 14 uh, or, or a dozen packages of munitions and other supplies come down onto this remote mountaintop and all the sheikhs have surrounded them and they're all praising Allah but little did they know that it was actually a few Israeli pilots and navigators <laughs> flying overhead dropping these munitions uh, so there were a lot of stories that had emerged then many decades later when the details of this came out uh, but at the time uh, it was obviously a part of showmanship. The imam had very little to uh, promise or, or give in return uh, other than some remote uh, ideas of, of recognizing Israel or establishing some kind of uh, relations with them and some remote idea or possibility. Uh, but it was more of, of sticking it to the Egyptians while they were in Yemen. Sure. Can you say a bit, Asher, about the Iranian involvement then? So the Iranian involvement was really tangential. It, uh, it's it's difficult to to think about uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia operating together, uh, especially if if you look at the northern tribesmen who Iran had assisted uh, alongside Saudi Arabia, uh, because t when we think about it today, we look at it uh, as the Houthis, who very much represent those same tribesmen, uh, are very much in line. Uh, on paper, if not in, in actuality, with Iran. 
uh, and create this idea that yeah, it must have always been like that without realizing that uh, the the imam was was very much a uh, a monarch. And and if we think, and that's why it's tempting to fall into that same Arab Cold War mindset, uh, because monarchs think alike. Uh, Egypt was a, a threat to Saudi Arabia, uh, was a threat to uh, northern Yemen, was also a threat to Iran. Uh, so keeping Egypt uh, in what I term Nasser's cage in Yemen, this quagmire, and perpetuating this conflict, was in the collective interests of many different countries, including Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel, uh, and, and the Imam. So this is one of those uh, historical case studies where uh, a common enemy unites other enemies uh, together, or even those who, who don't have uh, traditionally common interests, but will coalesce together and, at least on paper, uh, help out a common ad- uh, against a common adversary. Sure. So where does this leave the, the Yemenis then, the Yemeni agency, in the face of these these broader geopolitical, regional, international struggles. How do Yemenis operate within this, and how do they try and exert their their agency in the face of this this increasing pressure? Uh, is that pressure from the global tensions, or is that pressure from uh, the regional tensions, or is that pressure from within their own civil war? Well, I would say, how do Yemenis operate within all of these different parabolic pressures? Because they're all sort of exerting the same, well, they're all exerting pressure in different ways on on Yemeni agency, right? Uh, So the way that the Yemenis dealt with it was uh, rather, and this is something that was said by, uh, most astutely, by the uh, Soviet Pravda correspondent, a guy named Pavel Demchenko, uh, when the war was finally over in 1968 uh, and all of the international powers and interests pull out and all that's left is just the former remnants of the uh, northern tribesmen and the republic fighting it out in a, a major siege and battle in the capital city of Sana'a, uh, where he realizes that this war was not about the Cold War it was not about Arab nationalists and monarchies, but it was just about uh, this is the way that Yemenis transition power. Uh, and the world didn't understand it, but Yemenis understood it. So how did Yemenis react? Uh, they reacted by something that was known as the third force. Uh, so there were royalists up in the north uh, supporting the deposed imam. There were republicans in the capital city of Sana'a supporting the new republic. Uh, and then there was a third force of individuals who fell somewhere in between. And... Uh, these individuals, including the Iriani family, very famous Yemeni political family, were the ones to uh, position themselves where after 1968, when Egypt leaves, they're the ones to take over the country. So there's a battle that's happening, at least on the face of it. Uh, but under all of this facade, there's a group of Yemenis, there's a political class of Yemenis that represents the majority of the country uh, that's just waiting for the top layer of fighting to subside, uh, at which point they already have an idea and they have a way to coalesce the country uh, into a modern state. So how do Yemenis react to this pressure? Uh, They withdraw, create their own political structure, uh, and then have this to present to Yemenis and to the world as soon as the internationalized conflict is over. Right. That's really interesting. Uh, Asha, we've taken up a great deal of your time already, but if, if I may, I'll ask one final question. And that is, looking back on this and all of the work that you've done on on the history of the the Yemen civil war, 
What do you think are the lessons that we can take from this for looking at, at Yemen today? And I know you've done a lot of stuff on on contemporary Yemen and the the conflict in Yemen today. But I wonder what what the main lessons you think we can take out of out of Yemen's history for for looking at things today are. Uh, well, I think there's three main lessons that we can take out. Uh, one is that uh, it's important not to undersell Yemeni agency that. Yemenis mm. have uh, been able to sustain a very vibrant uh, social political structure for many more centuries than uh, that kind of political structure similarly in the Western world. Uh, so giving the Yemenis the space to come up with their own solutions without uh, forcing any international uh, intervention upon them uh, would be a solution, uh, would be a way to... Um, to allow Yemenis to essentially solve their own problems uh, without being overbearing. Uh, and that that's definitely a, a, a critique of, of UN and, and other international interventions. Uh, the second is um, that Saudi Arabia's relationship with Yemen uh, is has always been a one over regional border tensions since the 1930s. Uh, so understanding the fact that there are some disputed provinces along the Saudi-Yemeni border uh, that will continue to uh, create tensions between Saudi Arabia and, and Yemen and the southern border security uh, is something that was both evident during the 1960s and something that continues to be evident today. Uh, and in, that's important to uh, to, to mitigate. Uh, and the, the last takeaway is uh, that uh, the war in Yemen today, the war in Yemen during the 1960s, was not about uh, any sectarian or um, inter-country rivalry. It was not a proxy war uh, between two different countries or two different powers, uh, and it was certainly not a Sunni and Shi'i conflict, as, as they were all very much uh, of, of one uh, religious sect, but uh, is understanding that the conflict in Yemen shouldn't be divided uh, in some bipolar fashion, uh, but realizing that there's always a third alternative. And uh, it's a matter of helping that third alternative uh, get to the position where uh, where they can, similar to 1968, where uh, this conflict can end and, and where Yemen has always found its third alternative in between these two struggling powers. And, and Yemenis have been able to find that resourceful third uh, alternative. So those are the three main takeaways that I would uh, look towards history to try to understand. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing those. I think that they're, they're so important. And, and I think the book does a really good job of, of supporting all of all of that uh, in a far more detailed way than we've been able to go into today. But I urge everyone to, to get a copy of the book. It's absolutely fantastic and, and well worth your time. But Asha, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. I've got so much to think about on the basis of our conversation, but uh, I look forward to exploring this in more detail with you sometime in the not-too-distant future. Wonderful. It was very enjoyable. Thank you so much. And as always, until next time, thanks for listening.